Greetings and welcome to Cool Radio Stories, a podcast for independent radio stations in small to medium-sized markets, presented by Cool Radio Streaming. Now here's your host, Tom Dobrez. Welcome to our podcast today. I'm Tom Dobrez, owner of Cool Radio Streaming, and with us today is a gentleman that has been involved with medium to large-sized market radio stations since the mid-1970s rose to national prominence in radio circles during his 13-year stint as president and CEO of Cherry Creek Radio, a media company focused on small to medium-sized markets that our guest today started from scratch. He's an expert at growing people and companies, and today it's a real treat to hear the cool radio story of Joe Schwartz. Joe, welcome. Hey, Tom. How you doing? Very good, very good, Joe. We're so looking forward to hearing your cool radio story. But first, some programming notes before we begin. There's a cloud hanging over this production. At this time, the world remains in transition from a bit of a quarantine to the slow opening as the threat of coronavirus COVID-19 has overtaken the planet. And we're going to hear from Joe about his ideas about radio can be doing during this crisis. But we're going to table that towards the end of our show also like to inform the listener that we'll hear from attorney John Garziglia during our Ask John segment when we ask John about pressing legal matters in the radio world. And then we'll check in with John Wanzong of Radio Max for his insight and in our audio column called Digging into Digital. But first things first, Joe, let's start at the beginning. I'm always curious to hear the answer to this question. And I start our podcast off with what was radio job number one for you? My first job in radio, well, believe it or not, I started as a media buyer in New York City. And my first job in radio, I was a buyer for about a year. And CBS uh, formed an FM rep firm in 1977. And they needed a staff in New York. And I pitched the job and I was one of the original five hired. It it was then called CBS FM National Sales. And we repped all the uh, CBS FM O&Os. And uh, probably about 30 other stations in various bigger markets. So that was my my first uh, foray into radio. Well, that's a pretty high up the ladder start there to be at a national rep firm selling spot radio. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was fun. It was uh, I, I stayed in New York for about a year and then they promoted me to run Chicago uh, within a year. So I went to Chicago and was there from there for about four years. And my last job with CBS, I left CBS in 1982. My last job we had was a sales manager of WBBM FM. And which at that point went CHR and is today still CHR. So um, I was the first, I was the first sales manager of WBBM FM in Chicago. All right. So that led you. So you went from staying in, in the family, the CBS family from the rep firm to the spot side of things, then where did you go from there? Well, one of my clients uh, was in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, Larry Saunders and, and Dick Lamb and the company called Golden East Broadcasting. And um, <clears throat> they called me one day in Chicago and they needed a general manager in Norfolk. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought it would be a great opportunity 
I didn't know how far I would go with CBS. I was already, a, a, you know, GSM in Chicago, but I, I thought it was a great opportunity to go be a general manager. And I really liked these guys a lot. Um, I had no problem with Norfolk area and I wound up going there and stayed for 12 years, uh, four of them with Golden East. Then I went to work for Capital Broadcasting in Raleigh. They bought stations in the market in the mid 80s and I ran, ran their stations for three years. And then uh, they sold their stations. And right as they sold, I got a call from Ed Christian at Saga, who asked me to run WNOR in Norfolk, which I did uh, till the beginning of 1995. So I was there for 12 years and worked for three different companies, all in general manager capacities. Well, I was going to say that's quite a variety of different uh, businesses, owners that you worked for. Some turned into large corporate operations. Others stayed in that medium-sized business like Ed Christian and Saga. And then that led you to start your own company then. Is that right? Yeah. Basically, what I, what I did was I always, in the back of my mind, I always planned on owning radio stations, whether it was a company, a few radio stations, somewhere in the middle. I, I really didn't know. And I was approached by a, a real investment, a real estate investment firm in Philadelphia that was that had a contract to purchase stations in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they wanted to grow their company, a company called Bengal, B-E-N-G-A-L Communications. And they asked if I would join the company as a COO and initially uh, run Albuquerque, and which necessitated me picking up everything, me and me and my wife and moving to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1995 um, for Bengal Communications. So I ran the station there and right, uh, right at that point was, if you guys remember, the Telecommunications Act passed in 1996. So I'm, I am sitting there with three properties in Albuquerque, and deregulation is happening. And at that point, you had to decide, are you a buyer or a seller? Are you in this for the long term, or do you want to move out? And we, we, you know, we approached it both ways and wound up selling Albuquerque alone to Jeff Trumper for you know a good amount of money, three times the money we paid for about a year and a half before. And he bought another group in the market. So Jeff built the group and then he wound up selling it to back then Clear Channel. So we also at that time hooked up with an investment group in Birmingham, Alabama, and they had money that they needed to spend because of tax reasons. So we found stations in Eugene, Oregon, and in Santa Barbara, California, and Oxnard Ventura, California. And what we did is formed a management company, and we owned part of the company, but the investment group was the primary owner. We were their manager, management company, uh, and Bengal, you know, Bengal Management Company, and we did that until we sold those stations in 1999 to Cumulus uh, for the good old days when you can sell them for 21 times cash flow, which is what we sold them for. In 1999, boy, remember the multiples those days. Well, you're right. It's rather hard to phantom these days that uh, multiples and the number of stations. I mean, I remember getting the emails every day. There was just a, a huge log of transactions, radio stations bought, sold, outrageous multiples, as you said. Well, it was crazy because um, uh, public, you know, companies like Cumulus at that time and, and some of the other big companies had access to public money because they were, uh, you know, they were public companies and which was a lot cheaper than I could do uh, in the private sector. 
going uh, private equity, et cetera. So they, they were just gobbling things up left and right for almost any price, as, as if you remember the feeding frenzy back then, uh, which, yeah, which lasted for a while. So we, we got out in, in, in 99, early 2000. And at that point, uh, money was money for, it was hard for me to compete again with the public companies to get in, back into ownership. So what I did was I literally called my friends at Emmis in Indianapolis, and they just bought stations uh, uh, from back then. It was the Clear Channel uh, uh, merger with uh, Chancellor, and they had to sell stations in Denver. So uh, Emmis asked me if I would run their two stations that they were going to buy in Denver, and I did that in 2000, moved to Denver in July of 2000, and then Emmis had to sell every you know had to sell all their Denver stations in 2002 because most of their business was in New York and remember 9/11 happened and you know they they lost i mean their revenue went so far south obviously in New York and and other places that their balance sheet was looking a little tough and they needed to sell assets to straighten out their balance sheet so they they did Denver so I was out. I was out of a job after two years because uh, they sold one of them, one of the stations to Entrevision, which went Hispanic, and the other one to Intercom, Alice, which they still own uh, today. And at that point, I said, I really want to get back into ownership. That's what I do, and um, you know, that's what I really want to do. So, and that's what I'm good at. So, I uh, spent about a year and a half looking for the correct, you know, the right part of capitalization, where I can uh, find the right partners, um, uh, et cetera, people who understood radio. And I was looking for something that other people weren't doing. And at that time, there were very few groups, if any, west of the Mississippi. There were a couple, Mary, you know, Mary Quas's group at NRG, Roland Johnson then, back then at, at Three Eagles, but there were very few and far between, and they didn't go too far west. I wanted to go as far west as I could. So we went in front of literally 31 private equity companies, uh, either in person or phone call or both, and tried to convince them that small markets west of the Mississippi was a was a good buy. It was a good place to be. And we finally uh, hooked up with Arlington Capital out of Washington, D.C. Great people that backed us. And our first purchase was made in uh, 2003, Commonwealth Broadcasting uh, from the late Dex Allen, uh, who's owned a lot of different stations. And Dex sold us uh, his 24 stations in nine markets for uh, $41 million. And that's how we started Cherry Creek. And we closed in February of 2004 when we opened our doors. So we opened with 24 stations in nine markets. And to be honest, I didn't know where that would take us. It, you know, the goal wasn't necessarily to build a bigger company. The goal was if, if purchases made sense, uh, we would do that. If not, then, then we wouldn't. And everything we bought was pretty much Rocky Mountains, Mon Montana, Washington, uh, he had California, Arizona. So was that more or less the mantra of Cherry Creek going forward? Was it based on market size, geography, the old go west young man? How and why did you choose various markets? 
Yeah, basically, you know, basically before I bought Cherry Creek, as you could see, my mar my background was mostly major or medium markets. And the smallest market I, I worked in at that point was Albuquerque. So uh, going into the small market business was exactly what I wanted to do. And for the reasons you mentioned, there was very little sophistication. At that point in the small markets, what you really had, your competitor was the newspaper. There really weren't that many other radio stations. TV stations uh, were working off, you know, some of them didn't, like in Montana, station in Great Falls is also the station in Helena. Uh, one of the stations in Helena is also the station in Butte. So, you know, there weren't necessarily that many local television stations to compete with either. Also, we really didn't want to get into the ratings game. We did not have one Arbitron at that time, Arbitron contract today, Nielsen. We did not buy one, have one. I never bought one during Cherry Creek uh, because that was not where we thought uh, our strength was. Our strength was having building relationships and results for local advertisers. So that was the direction we went in. And there were opportunities, many opportunities out here. I, I, I added, uh, I began by adding stations in Helena, Montana. Uh, I, I did my research and I wanted to be in Montrose, Colorado, which is uh, the Western Slope, which is growing like crazy. So I, I bought three stations from a, a family ownership. Um, then at that point, Fisher Communications, which back then owned small market radio stations, a couple of big ones and and some television stations, wanted to uh, sell their small market stations. And they were in Montana and Washington. And which was perfect for us. So uh, back in 2000, I think when you moved into some of these new markets, we added so quite was a few. There a formula, a recipe that you would use to say, okay, here's the Cherry Creek way? Was there a, a policy of sales or things that you instituted when you would move into a new market? From a sales standpoint, yes. Uh, we believed very strongly that, especially in smaller markets, but even in big major markets, there was no training. And that was something that we insisted on. My director of sales at that time, Dan Giddings, was probably the best small market seller I've ever, I've ever met. He used to work for me. He ran my Eugene stations. And uh, just a fabulous trainer and a great seller. So we created a, our own system of how we would approach our clients. And what we concentrated on mostly was qualitative, not quantitative information. So we worked with uh, companies like back then Toma, you know, Media Audit, et cetera. And we created custom uh, research pieces in our market, which had nothing to do with the number of uh, bodies we had listening because we were, we were the market leaders anyway but talked about the habits of the people that were, that were listening to us. And that's how we approached it. Instead of saying, walking into a car dealer and saying, hi, we've got 30,000 people uh, listening to us at any given you know, time during six to 10, we would say, well, we have about 22,000 people that are looking in the next 12 months to buy cars. And uh, would you like to talk to those people? We had that type of data. And that's how we looked at it. Very, very, very much from a local standpoint, because national business in our markets was maybe eight to ten percent. It wasn't. It wasn't very big. So there were situations where you came in and you brought that research into these markets that perhaps didn't exist. Did you have uh, 
the training, I'm, I'm curious about that for the individual sellers. Did they get trained in the medium? Did they get trained in how to be sales? Or were you just say, here's. It was a combination of things, but primarily they were, they were trained uh, basically to look at the competition, to sell against back then, new, primarily newspapers, some television. And we really, really, really focused on, on going after newspaper dollars back then. I used to call it declaring war on the newspaper when we came into the market. Uh, and that's what we did. And, and part of our growth was because of that. And we emphasized that and uh, taught, you know, taught our staff how to deal with going up against the newspaper. So that was what we did. And then we trained them on sales techniques. We trained on everything. And, and the, the thing was, we, we uh, made our local managers have sales meetings every single day. And there was a lot of pushback. Maybe, you know, maybe that was too much, maybe not. But I could tell you by far, we were the best trained sales staff. You know, I'd put us, I'd put us up against anybody, any size market. Uh, we trained every day. We trained online. Uh, we would go market by market if that's what we did and spend a week there, whatever. But we worked like crazy to train, hire, recruit great people. And that is not an easy job, as you know, uh, not an easy job today. Certainly wasn't an easy job then. And uh, I don't see it as an easy job tomorrow. No, but, but you, made it a, you made it a priority of the company, it sounds like, that it, it became very important to you and to the rest of management that you were trained the people you were investing in. You obviously put a lot of time and energy and money into that. How did you, what did the hiring process look like? Where, what was the process there? Well, we did a few things. We did, you know, we, we, we did some innovative things and we did the, the normal things. The normal things were, uh, you know, running ads on your own air, cattle calls is what I called them, where we would get on the air, tell people we were having a, uh, we wanted to hire people for our stations. We were having meetings. We pick a hotel. Uh, and we would meet with people from eight o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, trying to find talent and getting as many people in there as we can. So, uh, and then of course, you know, living in the market, uh, talking to people in the market. But the one thing we did do, which had, I, I say mixed success, was I felt that in, in smaller markets, there really wasn't a big pool of, of media salespeople to choose from. So my, my thought was, let's find the best salespeople we could find in any industry, whether they sold cars, whether they were, you know, uh, you know, sold loans in a bank, whether they were the food and beverage industry, it didn't matter. If they can sell, they can sell. And I felt that if we can find people who can sell, we can teach them the business. So what I did was uh, work with uh, Lori Kahn at Media Staffing, and we set up a whole recruitment program. And her group uh, went into the markets that I designated and started looking for those type of people that I described. Any, you know, good, good salespeople. And funny things happened. Number one, we got, a, we got quite a few. And we kept a good amount of them. But the ones that left, which I find to this day, which makes me laugh, they left and I, and I would call them and say, well, why, why would you leave? You were doing pretty well. Uh, you know, you're obviously good at what you do. And they said, this is too hard. It's too difficult. It's too much work. 
that and and which got me to stop thinking start thinking this does take a lot and you know with remotes on the weekends we've uh, a lot of us have worked nights at remotes uh you know i mean some of us have worked 7 days a week for 2 3 months in a row i mean that's that's the business we're in so they weren't used to that and it scared them and uh you know some of them left but some of them stayed and became really good at it as well um but in in this day and age and today today's no different back then was you know no different when i first started in the 70s and 80s it was no different finding good quality salespeople is the number one to me the number one toughest job in radio today period and and yeah. I, and you know it's hard for me to to say that and then the big company's going to say well uh you know they have other things but if you really look at it uh if you have a good sales staff you win period well, my dad used to always say that uh, IBM never really made a better typewriter. They just had better salespeople. So once you get the, so obviously the emphasis of Cherry Creek was on the sales process. It, you talk about investments that you made, um, you know, from hiring firms to help you to traveling to these marketplaces. So now you got this sales staff and there's a lot of emphasis on their development. How about the rest of the building? You've got the, how did you make a team out of the traffic, out of production and promotional department? Well, first of all, we I, I, the first day I went to the markets, I was honest with everybody. And I said, if we're going to win, uh, we're going to win by growing revenue. Okay. We can't save ourselves to prosperity. So that, that speech was made to everybody in the building. So from day one, traffic, bookkeeping, uh, on air promotions didn't matter. Everybody knew that the goal here was to grow the revenue. In fact, when we, when I first bought the company in 2004, I had a, I brought in all my general managers within two weeks. And the first thing I did was I said, all right, I'm going to list the top 10 most important things going forward for Cherry Creek radio. And I took out a whiteboard and I wrote number one, I wrote revenue. Number two, revenue. Number three, revenue. I mean, you get the, you get the idea. Uh, they knew from day one. In fact, there are some of those people that are still around. If you ask them what I said in that first meeting, they'll tell you um, when I say, what's the most important thing at Cherry Creek Radio? It's revenue. So the, uh, and we did not neglect on air, not by a long shot. I had a group program director, Bob Guerra, um, when we first started. And Bob was a a uh, very talented programmer, been around for years. Bob is retired. He's in Nashville now, but he had a great reputation. Uh, and Bob worked with all of our stations and made sure that our station sounded top of the line. So that was number one. Number two, from a programming standpoint, we believed we had to have live morning shows, period. No matter what, we had to have live morning shows. And uh, the reason for that was, in my view, the morning show were, were the were the face of the stations, and they did most of the promotions, and they did uh, they were the most visible, and I felt that that would give us an identity for all the stations. So we had live morning shows everywhere. We were live in other places where economically it made sense, but you know we were live uh, everywhere in mornings, and then uh, a few years later. Uh, I, I tried, and, and 
with very limited success, to be honest. Uh, I, I got all of our on-air people on a call and I talked to them about, you know, a lot of them wanted raises and, you know, what's going on? How can we get a raise? I said, well, I think the best way to do it is why don't you guys get out on the street and sell some people, sell some clients. Everybody knows you. You're the stars of the, of the markets. You, if you call any client and say, hi, this is uh, Joe Schwartz and I want to come in and meet you and talk to you about the stations, they're going to know who you are. And, and, then, and then the other thing is you guys can create features on air and sell them yourselves. So I had very mixed success doing that. But um, we had some, some business. But again, the message was very, very loud and clear. We need to grow revenue. And that became even louder and clearer uh, post-2008, 2009. Uh, when, you know, the recession hit us. Well, you bring up a dark time, uh, 2008 recession, of course, more or less reflected in what uh, many radio stations are going through right now in COVID-19 crisis. And I'd like to explore your thoughts on getting through troubling times as a radio station owner and manager. But first, we're going to take a short break and listen to John Garziglio and check in on some legal issues of the day. And then we will return to hear the rest of the cool radio story of Joe Schwartz. It's time to Ask John, a regular feature where we ask John Garziglia, a partner with the FCC law firm Womble Bond Dickinson, about legal matters facing the broadcast radio industry. Today's email bag has a question about a new product category, advertising of CBD products. John, any guidance from the FCC on accepting that business? Well, there really isn't any FCC guidance whatsoever, but uh, the federal legality of CBD products remains hazy at best. But in looking at the consumer market, uh, merchants and manufacturers appear not to either care or to may have made a risk assessment at the lack of federal action against anyone that uh, indicates that CD, uh, CBD, manufacturer distribution and advertising, is a relatively low-risk endeavor. Also, in looking at uh, CBD advertising, there's safety in numbers. I mean, I don't want to trivialize things, but uh, if everybody is going uh, 72 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone, uh, the chances of being stopped are probably uh, not great unless uh, speed cameras are in use. So if everyone is advertising CBD products without specific concern for individual federal illegality, then the chances of anyone being singled out is less. Speaking with broadcasters, I, I've suggested that one of the ways a station can seek to protect itself in accepting buys for CBD products is to require that the advertiser or agency supply either an attorney opinion letter that the product is legal under federal and other laws, or uh, to provide some sort of uh, legal indemnification that the, broad, uh, the broadcast station will protect it, uh, indemnified against any legal fees or other consequences to the fullest extent possible if they run ads for the particular CDB product, uh, CBD product. Um, now, I'm not aware of any uh, radio stations successfully seeking either such an indemnity or an attorney opinion letter, but in a shaking circumstance, that might be one route to follow with an advertiser or an agency that uh, seems to be hawking something that uh, is perhaps of questionable legality. <laughs> We now return to the cool radio story of Joe Schwartz for 13 years. Joe was the president and CEO of Cherry Creek Radio, media company that focused on small, medium-sized markets, which he started from scratch 
during those dozen plus years, Joe, I'm sure you've had some troubling times. In fact, the big one, of course, was the recession of 2008 into 2009. I wanted to see if you wanted to draw some parallels or bring up some advice as many radio station owners are now facing very similar challenges with this whole COVID-19 crisis. Well, what you know, first of all, there's no substitute like experience. So 2008-2009, nobody had any experience in, in dealing with that type of recession. So we, we made it up as we went along, to be honest. And, and I'll never forget one of the first phone calls I made to my partners, Arlington Capital, uh, you know, the private equity guys. And in that, the, the staff at Arlington Capital were all Stanford, Duke, Harvard. I mean, these all MBAs from the finest schools in, in the world. As a matter of fact, so my uh, I asked one of my guys there. I said, "Give me some advice. What should we do?" And he said, "I have one word for you." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Survive." And that's basically the mode you went into. You went into a survival mode, and survival mode to me meant keeping as many people employed as I possibly can. And we tried for as long as we can. And I applaud the people today. I see Mary Quas at NRG. Folks at Cumulus, they're making, and, and you know, Bonneville and, uh, as well, they're making a big deal out of not letting people go. And God bless them. That is, that is the toughest thing to do. I had to cut 10% of my workforce eventually. And it was extremely, extremely painful. Um, so, I, again, you, you really, because we've never gone through something like this, uh, talking about the recession. You make things up as you go along. And uh, what we found was uh, in radio, we got hit by a double whammy, really. The first whammy was obviously the recession, but the second one, and, and equally important, was the uh, emergence of digital. And digital, at first, took a great amount of their money from radio. And you can see since 2008, 2009, radio's lost four to five billion dollars worth of revenue. So right off the bat, we're trying to make up the revenue we lost because of the recession, okay, on top of the revenue we're losing because of digital. And at that time, 2012, 2013, 2014, very few companies uh, were equipped to deal with digital. At that time, you know, the one that was really heavily into digital, the one company that I could say was, was Town Square. Still, they still are. Everybody else was trying to find their way. And um, most of them have found their way today. But back then, here you are, uh, you know, specifically a radio group and digital is is kicking your butt uh, because it's the new shine. It's a shiny new toy uh, versus the analog a life of radio at that point. So, <clears throat> so we had two things to overcome. Okay. Number one, again, the recession and number two, the, the, the emergence of digital. So we, we had to try to figure out from there, how are we going to grow this? Because the consensus at that point, once we got to 2013, 2014, was that it didn't look like radio alone was going to grow. And it hasn't. Um, uh, we haven't seen growth in the radio business since 2008. Um, so that necessitated the need to expand to other media. 
So what are some of those alternative media digital strategies that you would suggest to today's radio station manager? Well, it's, it's expensive to start your own. For example, to go out and, and, and start your own uh, digital company and build everything that, that you need in a small market is, is almost impossible. The good news is there are a few vendors out there today uh, that, that work digital. So my, my advice, pretty much the small markets, is to find one of those vendors. And you have Vici, Second Street, et cetera, that do a good job, work with them. You know, you could, you, obviously you're gonna raise your, your revenue a great deal. They do, they revenue share with you, but they're the experts and they'll teach you how to, you know, pretty much how to do it. And to be perfectly honest, it's the only way to go because if you're, if you're in the radio business today uh, and you're not selling multimedia, then, then you're in big trouble. Uh, and I don't care what market you're in. Um, the world has changed. I mean, you look at today, take, you know, you're in Chicago, Tom. Every big broadcaster is in Chicago and radio or TV. Plus you got the Chicago Sun-Times, which is pretty good. You got big cable operations there. So everybody today is competition because everybody's selling the same thing. The radio stations, the TV stations, the newspapers, not only that, but you're now in competition with the ad agencies. Because back then, when you were radio stations, that's what you had to offer. Today, you can offer everything a, 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 you know, an ad agency can offer. So the world is completely, completely different. When we started, Tom, it was newspaper, radio, and TV, period. That's all you really needed to know. Today, the sophistication of digital learning, how to uh, talk to a client about all the options out there because they have no idea what to do. Um, it's it's if you're not a multimedia company, um, you're. I think you're in big trouble. So small markets are probably have a bigger opportunity than others because they have less players in the mix and they can stand out. And if they commit to a complement, you know, we talk about looking at it from a programming metaphor. Sometimes you will get programming from outside your market through uh, vendors or networks, and yet you'll still do a morning show. Is it kind of the same philosophy when it comes to that digital presence in a small market? Maybe you get a company that uh, helps you with the admin, the back end of things, and then you provide local information and then have the local sellers promoting it. Well, yeah. I mean, there are some small market groups that have their own digital play. Um, my friends at Leighton Broadcasting up in Minnesota, they have a digital play. They've been in it since 2009. Uh, but that's few and far between. There are very few small companies that have digital plays. So, yeah, the idea basically is to train your reps in, in multimedia, even though you're going to use outside vendors for some of it. Your reps have to know everything about it, absolutely everything. Now, they're not going to put together the website or the app or, you know, do the physical work, but they're going to talk to their accounts about, uh, you know, digital and how to work with uh, radio and digital, et cetera. They have to be so much sharper and know so much more than, than they ever had to know. That's, that's the business today. It's the media business. Not right. the radio right. business. And, and I think today, smart radio operators in small markets use their stations as a base because it gives you the opportunity 
to trade in the market as those radio stations because you're known. But take that advantage. Go to clients and show them how to use media today in 2020. Okay, not in not in 2000, in 2020, because the world has changed. And and I, I don't believe at this point there is any one medium that could do the job. I really don't. I really think today it's all about media mix. And, you know, as bullish as I am on radio and radio works tremendously well, as well as it always has. If you can have uh, digital products supporting uh, your radio campaign, it's going to work that much better. You really will get better results. So that that's because the world is fractionalized. You have to have to. You have no choice. You must be a multimedia operation, period. Right. Well, and it goes back to what you said at the very beginning of this about training your sellers. And that's the maybe the technology has changed. Maybe the terms have changed. But the concept of making sure that your sellers have the latest and greatest tools is one aspect. But the other is how to use those tools uh, to accomplish the goals of their clients. And training seems to be uh, even more important as, as sellers need to learn some new tricks. It's all, it's all about the training. And, and you have to have the credit. You know, our salespeople have been uh, in, a, in a small market. It's not, it's not unusual to have somebody that's been there for 25 years and has been calling on those people for 25 years. But that person knows very little, if anything, about digital. What they do know is how to talk to the client and how to get in to see the client. We could teach them the rest, um, but that is that is how we use veteran salespeople in a market is to teach them. And you know, we've heard stories about a lot of veteran reps. I've seen it happen to me that said, "I don't want to sell anything else but radio. I'm a radio guy." And blah blah blah. Well, those guys, you know, as much as I hate to say it, they're not around anymore. And uh, you have to grow with the industry and. Today, the media industry is really one, and and your competition is completely, completely changed. It's everybody. It it really is, if they're doing it right. Now, the other thing, too, I will say, the reason I like small markets and I talk about it is because in the bigger markets, they already have the big digital platforms. Uh, even the TV stations, a, a TV group like Sinclair has 96 digital products. That, that I know of, 96. Now, they don't sell all 96, but they're, you know, that's what you're dealing with when you go to a market. You're up against Sinclair, and they're all like that. Any of the TV groups, look at look at what Intercom has, look at what Beasley has. You know, Town Square is still as strong as ever in, in the digital play. You know, so you're going into markets. Again, Saga's starting something new now. Um, I mean, everybody is in it. And you better be prepared in every market you're in to be a, a digital seller, but in the smaller markets, the bigger players are not there. They they have no interest of buying in there. Um, they have no digital presence there. So the opportunity for small market operators to build a media platform, like I'm describing before, is I believe is huge. I I, I think the opportunity is is as big as as you can imagine. It really is. They have what most stations or what most marketers want, and that's the existing brand uh, that, that, that people in the market trust. They know the call letters or the station moniker, 
And that is where the trust starts. And therefore, anything they were to do on digital would be probably have a leg up on the competition. Well, you know, the way you got to look at it is our job uh, as radio owners is to sell Ford F-150s or whatever we're selling. It doesn't matter how we do it. If we do it on Facebook, if we do it on Google, if we do it strictly radio, if we do it by mapping, um, if we do it by, it doesn't matter as long as we sell F-150s. That's really the point. Okay. And you have to have, you have to come from a standpoint where if you think that a television station in a market is right for a client, you have to be in a position to recommend that. And that's how you have to look at it. It is all client based because they know very, very, very little about marketing. Some of them aren't even that good in their own companies. Uh, you know, knowing their own, knowing their own products, how are they going to know about advertising and marketing? So it's up to us to teach them, point them in the right direction. And as I said before, to sell the Ford F-150s, that's basically our job. And, and how we do it really is, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but what products we use, whether it's digital broadcast today, you know, you can, uh, you can use television through OTT. Uh, you don't have to go to the TV stations if you don't want to. And that's OTT is growing in leaps and bounds, especially now that we're all quarantined. Um, you know, the levels of viewership on, uh, you know, on the, on the Netflix and the Hulus, et cetera, is huge and growing. So again, you have to approach this. It's a new world. And, you know, I, 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 I can't stress that anymore than, than I, than I've been throughout this whole, uh, whole conversation. Well, I certainly appreciate your passion about the ideas and I also thanks Joe, but uh, one more final thought, uh, a word of advice, perhaps, to our radio station managers and owners that are listening about how they should broach this current crisis? Well, today, today we have to make sure that we keep our clients in business uh, or else we won't have a business. So I know of quite a few operators that are giving uh, free advertising to their top clients. And, you know, when I hear the word free, I, I shake. I, you know, it's just one of those things that doesn't uh, compute with me. But in this environment, you have to. You need to help these people stay in business as much as you possibly can. The problem, obviously, is keeping ourselves in business. Um, you know, and, 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 and I think if we run it as cheaply, as inexpensively, as efficiently as possible today, um, that is all we really can do. But the way I look at it is, and as tragic as this is, and, you know, none of us have ever seen anything like this. You know, we said it during the recession. We've never seen anything like that. Well, this trumps the recession. No, no pun intended, but, um, it really does. And I think you have to look at surviving now, but looking at your future, especially in small markets, I think the opportunity to reinvent yourself is huge. I think you you reintroduce yourself as a different product, as a multimedia company, and how you're going and what the advantage is to the clients. This is the opportunity to do that, to take a negative like, like this, I mean, a horrible, horrible catastrophe like this, and once the smoke clears, hopefully very soon, 
to reposition yourself in the market as the multimedia leader. And this is why this is the way the world is today. This is why we're doing this. And this is how it'll benefit you, Mr. Client. And that's, I believe, the positive of going forward. Right now, it's all about survival and helping your client survive. There is no, you know, other strategy besides that. I mean, everybody's doing, uh, you know, doing. everybody's working on Skype. Everybody's doing all those type of things. I read where Alpha, uh, you know, this morning had a, a, a webcast where they brought in a management uh, expert to talk about this. You know, things like that, I think, are, are great. Anything you can do to help your clients stay in business uh, and, and to keep our employees employed is is the job. And uh, I don't envy, not at all, I don't envy the people that have to deal with this every hour of every day. This is this is tough. It's tricky indeed. Well, Joe, we thank you so very much for sharing your cool radio story with us today. Any parting comments? Just that it will get better. And and I think really you can I, I think the idea of relaunching and in a small market and using your radio stations as the platform is an opportunity to see your, I, I think the opportunity to get the revenue back right away, just selling radio spots is not there. The opportunity to get your revenue back by becoming a multimedia uh, company is very much there. So, and that's something we didn't have during the recession, uh, but we have that now. So, and the, and the tools are there to do it. So I encourage all my small market friends, please, please become multimedia uh, companies, please. Great sound advice from Joe Schwartz, president, former president and CEO of Cherry Creek Radio, amongst a thousand other titles. Joe, thank you so very much for sharing your cool radio story with us today. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. We are not finished here on Cool Radio Stories. We like to end with a little audio magazine we call Digging Into Digital. Opportunity to hear the latest thoughts on what your digital strategy can and should be. So let's turn it over to John Wansom. It's time to dig into digital. Our segment on how you can use digital to unleash the power of your station. Here's our digital guide, John Wansom, CEO of Radio Max. With social media, I see a lot of the stations posting content and the full content and then directing that article off to wherever it is from that social media. So not only did you interact with the person on the social media chat, you directed them somewhere else. You want to tease up that content on social media and then serve up that content on your site. It's a perfect way to provide good information on social, but then pull the story back into you. And I'm not talking about creating all this content, but if you've got good content, you want the listener to be able to engage with, look at, find the information, have that available on your site and easily easily found on your site. So then when you think about mobile, that's where you want to have the interactions. Mobile is more built for, you know, when we talked about polls and contests and doing real-time interactions, that's where mobile fits in and obviously the listening component as well. So when if you're thinking about updating your site, which I'm guessing probably many of you are, it's still a really big an important component to your digital strategy. It's just making sure that it's more informational based than interactional based, if that makes sense. 
That's John Wan Zung, CEO of Radiomax. For more on using digital to unleash the power of your station, visit radiomax.co. Well, that does indeed conclude our podcast for today. We appreciate you listening to the cool radio story of Joe Schwartz. I'm your host, Tom Dobrez, president and owner of Cool Radio Streaming. Any audio streaming questions you have about bringing your broadcast station or sports, what have you, online to your listeners, please let us know. That's coolradiostreaming.com. You've been listening to Cool Radio Stories, a production of Cool Radio Streaming. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit CoolRadioStories.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.